Hello, everyone. It's Sophie, and this is the Levantex Political Podcast. Some interesting things to discuss, loads of things happening around us in the Middle East, and a wonderful guest today. We have Ahmed Shahabuddin with us today. He is, I want to call, an Emmy-awarded journalist. He will uh, elaborate on this for us in just a minute. However, we've brought him on the show today because... He, he was born and raised in America, but he has very strong ties to the Middle East. And we really want to try to bridge this gap of uh, thought, as I want to say, and how people are, uh, how Arabs are perceiving the Arab world in, in the States and how Arabs in the Arab world are perceiving what is happening um, in the States and its effect on them. So, Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be with you. So just elaborate on the Emmy Award part so uh, our guests understand yeah, you know, what happened so, there. <laughs> it's, it's so misleading. Um, after four years where facts don't matter, at least in the U.S. and sadly much of the digital and, and other parts of the world, I should say I wasn't awarded the Emmy, sadly. I was nominated. Um, but yeah, that was for a program I did on The Stream, which was a show on Al Jazeera English, and it was a episode that I was particularly proud of. It was really holding um, those in power accountable in, in the region, focused on Bahrain, but also the rest of the GCC. Um, and it was many, many years ago, so it was kind of my claim to fame. But uh, as you mentioned, since then, even though I was born in the States, I've lived in the Middle East, I've lived and worked in the US and all over the world. And a lot of my work is focused, uh, for better or worse, on social justice and human rights as a result. Um, of my identity, quite frankly. Well, definitely, that's not anything that any of us can question. I mean, uh, I'm in Beirut and our people have been on the streets for the last year and I'm sure you're very much aware it's been taking place in Iran. There is slaughter happening in Yemen. There are so many things that we can sit and discuss today. And um, I'd love to hear your perspective and, and so would a lot of other people, you know, because we're sick of being told um, you have to think this way, you have to say these things, you have to do this, and you're sort of marched around like a robot instead of taking power into your own hands, understanding what is social justice, understanding how to deal with corruption, you know, and the ways forward. So before we get into solutions per se, let's try to understand what the problem is currently. Um, we've had four years of Trump. And it's, we're still not sure if we're going to have another four years or Trump or not. Um, I'm always going to leave that a little bit open because it's, for me, it's none of it has been determined yet. So I think just uh, why does the U.S. have such an impact on the Middle East region? You know, that's a huge question. And it's the right question to be asking because there's decades and decades of policy, of military intervention, of uh, wars being waged, of weapons being sold. Um, and I think the last four years has marked a shift away from a lot of that with the unpredictability, to put it um, gently or lightly, of the Trump administration. But um, to your point, I mean, you know, the U.S. has played a very heavy hand in not just a wars of, of our generation and our lifetime, but if you go back to colonialism, you go back to the Middle East as we understand it, and I don't want to digress uh, too far, but, uh, you know, you can talk about drawing lines in the sand, and, and you know, I think the way I would frame it is the U.S. Um, has dictated 
through nefarious means, through economic uh, uh, policy, through military policy, through wars waged Iraq, Syria, Palestine, through its billion dollars of support for Israel, um, you know, for decades now. And and I, gu I guess it maybe the question <laughs> is is the opposite. You know, how can anyone presume or pretend that the U.S. and and the elections in the U.S. and the and the policies and the governments and the functioning of the U.S. or I guess the last four years the dysfunctioning of the U.S. Um, plays not only a big role on you know trade deals and and all the high and lofty things that can feel far removed from our personal lives in the Middle East, but when it comes to liberty, justice, freedom, dignity for women, for for minorities, for so many of us in the Middle East, uh, the U.S. is, is um, as I said, they play a very, very heavy hand. So, yeah, everyone's been watching this election, I think, uh, more closely because the last four years has, has again, marked a real um, frightening, quite frankly, um, shift away from, from the status quo. Not that the status quo was uh, constructive, or let's say productive uh, in terms of progress in the Middle East when it comes to you know justice and and, and um, dignity, um, yeah. So I, I think um, I think it's an interesting moment because you know for as much as you are are saying you're not going to say that the election has been decided, uh, I would argue that you know many many millions of Americans would disagree with you whether they're right or not, let's say. But all this to say that Trump won the election four years ago by 306 electoral uh, college, uh, you know, that's how much he won by. And, and Biden so far has won this one by the exact same amount, by 306. So for as much as Trump isn't conceding or at least having a schizophrenic uh, verbal diarrhea, as it always, always seems to be, about whether he will concede, uh, I think it is a done deal. I think everyone in the region, uh, in the Middle East, is aware of that and have been, you know, communicating with with the Biden administration or the president-elect's administration. And you know, for as much as European uh, leaders have been celebrating and enjoying kind of a collective sigh of relief, if you will, um, in the Arab world, yeah, I was just I going to say, say to you, I don't think there's this sense of relief that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking, everyone who doesn't know, we're having a conversation on Zoom. So I am actually getting to look at Ahmed's face while he's talking to me. And um, every time he's mentioning the fact that uh, things are solidified and Biden will be coming over, there's this little smile that appears. But I, I, I think what, what's happening is uh, in the Middle East, this smile is not a smile. It's more of a sneer. And it's like, uh, we've sort of had free reign for four years to do whatever it is mm -hmm. we need to do, apart from Iran, apart from Iran, right. like the sole focus. Right. But what is right. Biden going to uh, do? Well, it, it's funny you say that. Um, I was going to say uh, that the Arab world's collective uh, reaction can maybe best be described as constipation. <laughs> not, not, not to, not to you know, lower the, the level of discourse on this podcast. But, but quite frankly, I think there's like kind of a tension, right? Um, you know, around uh, what, what might happen in reaction to kind of not just uh, Trump's disastrous, if you, if you would allow me to call his policies disastrous um, in the Middle East. I think there's also 
you know, a lot of people are, are cognizant, a lot of the leaders are cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, with the pandemic and with the economic crisis itself in the U.S., uh, for as much as Biden may want to mark a huge departure from Trump's policies, he may not be able to do that. Uh, that said, to answer your question kind of more succinctly, um, you know, there was a meme that my mom, you know, I don't know if your mom sends you forwards on WhatsApp the I way my mom I think all of us does. have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it like an Arab mom thing or is it beyond that? Uh, but well, the, my, the my mom's is, English and, and she can't stop sending memes so you're all right <laughs> yeah i think thing. it's i think it's sadly yeah i think it's a mom thing um well you know there is this week of tension i i left the u.s a couple of days before the election i came to be with my parents and my family in kuwait and so it was a week of tension as you were saying people not sure if the election was actually over was it not and you know before there was clarity if there is clarity and um in that kind of chaos, there was this one meme that my mom had sent me, which showed a very sad, despondent Sisi, uh, the leader of Egypt, um, MBS as well, and several other Arab leaders, let's say. Just like it was funny in of itself on the mom level where they were just tra you know, tragically crying. Um, and it's exactly what you said. Trump has afforded a lot of these leaders a complete lack of accountability. And quite frankly, when it comes to Saudi Arabia, which you know is kind of the bellwether in the region, Trump has actually given him unconditional support at a time when he's been making huge moves, perhaps some that can be framed as, as positive uh, for domestic policy. Uh, but when it comes to geopolitics, I would again say it's been precarious at best. And uh, I definitely don't think the, the Middle East is more stable. I don't think that Arab, you know, the people living in the Middle East have better lives or a better sense of security or more hope at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you're in Beirut. I, last time I was in Beirut, I'm sadly, I was not allowed to enter Beirut after my last reporting trip there because I was covering the, the, you know, the, the trash protests yeah. um, for your English listeners. But it's, it's just been a dire kind of reality in so many Arab countries and such a disconnect between the people and their leaders. And, but this, uh, is, yeah. this is definitely it's, true. I'm sorry to cut you off, Ahmed. The only reason why well, is because you're do. on the trail of the exact trail of thought of, of where I'm going with this is it, it, you have this huge division that's taking place in the Middle East currently. You know, are we pro-Biden? Are we pro-Trump? Well, we're not right. American, you know, like... Right. Oh, yes, it does inf it, it, um, sort of have an effect on us, but it's going to be up to us to change where we are. We can't expect any other player to do that. It, they might facilitate it, make it easier, make it more difficult. But at the end of the day, you can't just sit in your chair and think, okay, Biden's coming. We're all going to be all right. No, you're not going to be okay. Um, well, we weren't well, okay with Obama. We weren't okay with Trump. We are right. exactly where That's we are. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And, and we've yeah. really got I was, I was going to say there was there was that moment you know where Obama was was elected and people had that thought that things would take a turn for the better in the Middle East and quite frankly you could argue that that the opposite happened um, and to your point about you know you're not in the US you're not Americans and and yet people are so engaged and so divided uh, almost equally as divided one could say as the US population I think that's really because on a global scale, we are living through an unpredictable and uncertain moment. I mean, this level of uncertainty caused by the pandemic and the virus, um, both in terms of as individuals and you know families and communities, 
but but also just on a global scale, like we're all living through this uncertainty. And, and I think Trump only compounded that, the fact that he was in power when this happened. Um, you know, we've seen so much uh, uncertainty. I, I remember one of the first videos I did when Trump was elected. And, and quite frankly, I covered Trump's uh, presidency the first few years on the ground on Facebook Live while reporting for AJ+. And uh, it made me very disillusioned. You know, the whole facts don't matter, fake news thing, and the lack of accountability and the, just blowing up the system and doing it in the, in the least kind of insightful or, 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 or thoughtful way. Um, it made me very disillusioned and kind of paralyzed by that moment and the fear and, and kind of turned me off. Uh, quite frankly, from journalism and, and the power of journalism. I mean, let's not forget in the U.S., for better or worse, you know, um, journalism is the fourth estate. It is, it is essentially enshrined in the Constitution. It is critical to the functioning of the democracy. And I think we can all agree that our democracy, if we can call it that, is not functioning anymore. And that it's much closer to kind of an uh, authoritarian governance model uh, under Trump. And so to answer your question about what can we assume or predict uh, under Biden, look, it's doubtful, for example, that Biden will confront Saudi in any big way. What he will not do is give the unconditional support that we've seen under Trump, for example. Uh, same with Sisi. And, you know, it's no secret that Trump had, you know, a complex when it comes to a lot of these autocratic, uh, more dictatorial leaders uh, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the rest of the world, even in Russia. So, you know, Biden's administration uh, will likely be four years of a policy that not many people in the Arab world will like, uh, people meaning the leaders, but they will understand, you know, it will be, uh, it will be coherent uh, compared to Trump's. And perhaps because of that, it will be easier to undermine uh, which might point to the kind of um, weakness in, in, in kind of Biden's positioning and stance and posture at this moment in the world. You know, the U.S. used to cover parts of the world like the Arab world and the Middle East in a very kind of narrow-minded uh, way, a, a lens and a framing that was always about sectarianism and violence and the strong men and you know, and, and the lack of being able to do that with Trump when he very much deserved that same framing, I think, has left a lot of Americans, particularly, you know, those of us who, again, are Arab American or, you know, it's made us uh, kind of disillusioned. And I think it highlights um, it highlights that I think, you know, this isolationism that Trump kind of has championed, uh, as much as Biden has promised to kind of you know, rejigger and, you know, rekindle alliances and so on and so forth. I think he may be, he may find that he's, he's limited in his ability to do that as a result of the economic crisis itself in the U.S. and the pandemic. One question, just to lead off what you're saying, because, no, I mean, there are so many yeah, Otherwise, that... I will ramble the whole time, by Trust the way, me, so I, that's I know. your job here. <laughs> I'm a rambler as well, so uh, it's all good. Mm -hmm. um, but just touching on... It's so hard to have this conversation because I don't want to be um, coming across as biased or, or trying to take a position because I'm really not trying to do that. I'm just trying to bring to light these dark questions that we all have in the back of our minds that we might not know the answers to. Now, there is this really scary feeling, Ahmed, uh, in, in, in the region at the moment. I don't know if you have felt it yet. I don't know if you've been here long enough because I know you've only just come back to Kuwait. 
but there's this real feeling mm -hmm. maybe it's mostly in the levant but there is a war coming there is there is blood coming and and we're all trying to be optimistic we're all trying to get on with our lives but there's the demarcation of borders happening between Lebanon and Israel. There's Cyprus in the loop. There, it, suddenly Bashar al-Assad has found his voice again and he's harping on um, every day. Uh, Turkey is, is on some weird agenda that none of us are really aware of. And, and, the, and the GCC is very quiet, but at the same time making peace mm -hmm. with Israel. Like, it's all getting very dodgy. The Palestinians suddenly might not have a home to even ever return to. Like, there is, it is more uh, freaky than it was four years ago. It's it's actually very scary. And if this is what Biden is going to be left with, is there anything he can actually do? Can he even? I mean, Hezbollah's arming itself. Iran is getting ready uh, for Biden to lift the sanctions and give it more breathing space. That means mo most of its proxies are going to be fed with more money. That means more instability in the region. Um, this may be the, the, the Muslim attacks that are, are taking place in, in Europe currently. I, I mean, Ahmed, it, it's, it's put the pandemic aside. It's just nuts. Well, yeah. And, you know, as much as I wish we could put the pandemic aside, I, I'm not trying to, to kind of disagree with you for the sake of it. But I think that everything you just outlined and at least that perception that you're describing of whether it's a war coming or... You know, it's it's all um, connected, not only to the pandemic, but again, the, the uncertainty and the unpredictability of Trump in office. I mean, um, he was withdrawing from the Middle East, to, to be fair. And yet you described that perception that, you know, something horrible was coming. And I think it's because everybody's jostling, as you said, Turkey and the GCC and the divisions here and between Qatar and Saudi, and yet all these the normalization of ties with Israel. I mean, it's the sense of loss and the despair. I mean, look at Lebanon, 300,000 people made homeless overnight. You know, it, just the sense of loss and the tragedy, it's, it's again, you know, there's always a difference. It's important to, to highlight that perception dictates our reality in many ways. And I think what you're putting your finger on is the perception in the Levant, in the Arab world is is worrying. I don't know what your question is per se, so I don't want to like sidetrack. But what I will say, and please jump in, but what I will say is that Trump's kind of transactional business-like approach to diplomacy uh, largely left issues that I've focused my career on, such as human rights and social justice and progress, completely out of the balancing act. And so as a result, you've seen some nefarious, and quite frankly, this there's a lot happening that we don't even, to your point, that we don't even know about. What Trump gave many leaders who have obviously their own self-interests and their own, you know, their own um, benefit uh, in mind, not the benefit of their people. And I think that's very clearly indicated by a lot of these normalization uh, deals, if you will, with, with Israel. Um, I don't know that that's any, there's any way to really, of course, that's horrible for the Palestinian people. It's been a devastating, you know, turn of events, as you described. But we're used to that, and we're resilient, and I hate to say that. What it's also done is it's, it's kind of heightened that sense of, of anxiety. Um, and so, 
you know, we will see, I'm trying to find some light at the end of the tunnel, we will see an effort from the Biden administration to kind of return to the systematic, institutionalized, alliance-centered, rules-based international order that, you know, the U.S. argues they spent decades carefully building. Um, that said, the reality on the ground, for example, where you are, uh, as well as where I am here in Kuwait, I mean, Kuwait is tapping into their after oil fund for the, you know, for the first time in, in Kuwait's existence. And that fund was not supposed to be really ever accessed, uh, you know, until we ran out of oil, which we haven't done, for, you know, sadly. Um, but again, that just highlights, you know, the insecurity and all of the the domestic workers, the migrant workers, all the changing laws around that. It's creating real instability on the local level here in Kuwait and every GCC country on the broader scale. And so, you know, it was once a guarantee, right, um, that Saudi Arabia would remain in, in, DC, in Washington's kind of good graces, if you will, no matter what. Um, that's not the case any, anymore. Well, it's you not know? the case anymore and because Biden, you, just to touch on what you said about Kuwait and the oil, like, is yeah. Biden Biden doesn't yeah. necessarily have oil as its uh, go-to. It's not on the top of his agenda. He has to um, change the rhetoric when it comes to climate change as well. He has to make a difference. Right. He needs to put a stamp on this to maybe even give himself some credibility on in the international community. I was reading an article on the Guardian News that saying the uh, England is working now with more like 40% renewable energy, which they weren't ever. So with you just mentioning Kuwait now, thinking, what are we going yeah. to do? How much power will Saudi have in the Middle East now? Well, well, and, you know, there is also an argument to be made that, you know, the U.S. is producing more oil and, and you know, gas than any. They, they no longer need the, these countries in the same way they did. And, you know, there's an elephant in the room that we haven't discussed, which is China and its kind of own agenda and what it's been doing while the U.S. has been like, you know, devolving. Uh, <laughs> Uh, how it's become a leader in renewable energy, um, how, you know, it's created so much of a influence in parts of the world, such as Africa, the Middle East. And, and so, you know, again, this, this world that the U.S. carefully spent a lot of decades building has unraveled. Let's be real. Uh, not fully, but to a certain extent. And so Biden, you know, Biden called the Saudis, for example, uh, the pariah that they are. Um, you know, and pledge to treat them as such. Um, that's a huge departure from Trump kind of, you know, like being buddy-buddy with MBS and, and, you know, you know, so so I guess, you know, and I know you said when we were offline that you didn't want to focus on Iran, but you did mention Iran, and obviously Iran is kind of the boogeyman here in G the GCC, yes, for better or worse. <laughs> You're right, and, and then you talk about Hezbollah and, and, you know, the Iran connection there and Syria. I mean, Obviously, these are very complex things. Um, oh, forgive me. Don't these worry. are very complex things, but but I think that um, you know Trump signed massive weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Look at the war in Yemen. We have Yemen, poor Yemen. I mean, you know, as 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 a Palestinian, uh, you know, when I saw the civil war unfold in Syria and when I was covering it as a journalist, it's 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 tragic to see any country, you know, lose its its. Uh, itself lose its its identity lose its land lose its children lose its and that's what we've seen uh in yeah exactly in such large swaths of the arab world so you know despite congressional opposition trump's signed those massive weapons deals with the, the uae and saudi arabia then that was followed up by the normalization of ties uh with israel and 
you know, beyond that being an, a dagger in the heart of, of so many Palestinians, myself included, but also so many Arabs, um, it's also geopolitically worsening and, and adding a lot more insecurity, I think, in the long term. I mean, Trump isolated Palestine emboldened and emboldened Israel to the extreme. Uh, even though that's not going to continue in the same way under Biden, um, not much else can happen, you know, beyond these kind of symbolic, like, a, you know, uh, you know, uh, reestablishing ties with the Palestinian Authority and setting up, you know, a consulate in East Jerusalem and giving out handouts from coordinating with the EU to give out handouts to the, the Palestinian Authority, which itself is complicit in the occupation. And, and you know, I made a documentary for Vice on HBO uh, that was critical of Israel, obviously, but also very critical of the Palestinian Authority, because we really do need to look at ourselves. Uh, for as much as the U.S. does have a profound impact on, on our lives, for those of us living in the Arab world in the Middle East, um, I think we do really need to look in the mirror. And um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are going to keep doing what they've been doing, uh, and do it more so, I think, which is to continue to seek new allies, uh, with the U.S. kind of being lost in its own kind of confusion of, as you said, like, is Biden the president? Is he the president-elect? Is he not? There's this economic crisis, there's the pandemic, uh, the UAE and Bahrain's normalization of ties with Israel. Biden's going to encourage that, maybe not as intensely as Kushner, but let's be real. Biden himself said and is on camera saying time and time again, I am a Zionist. Uh, he even said, uh, you know, back before the year that the U.S. started giving billions of dollars of aid to Israel, Biden said in front of Congress uh, in a speech, if Israel was never created, we would need to invent an Israel in order to advance our, you know, whatever, security and our, you know, hegemony. He didn't say hegemony, Hegemon. but obviously that's what he meant. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, to answer your original question, like that statement alone by this president-elect, you know, had Israel not been created, we would have to invent an Israel. Tells you all you really need to know. It, no, it makes it exactly. slightly more scarier because uh, there's going to definitely be a retaliation. There's, you can't just make a decision like that and expect everyone to get on the, get on their knees and say, okay, well done. I think in from a millennial perspective or the younger generation, they they have got to a point right. where they just say we don't care. You know, it, what is Israel? Whether we have where whether we whether we have ties with them or not, it's not going to make a difference to my life. But you do have the older generation that have been for years brainwashed into thinking certain things or acting certain ways or affiliating with certain parties, voting in certain ways to make sure the enemy could never cross the border again. So this is never going to go down well. And I wanted to end this question. And I think um, you can really touch on this for me. The last question I have here is, is the millennials, you know, the, as you've seen in Lebanon, we have uh, independence, you know, the largest amount of independence now um, in the AUB elections, with the LAU elections. The, the time, things are changing. People are trying to make right. a difference. The, the, the children are taking Small over. Yeah, they're using social yeah. media to, to get a voice. So I, I know we're seeing it in Lebanon. Um, we are seeing this in Saudi. This is why Saudi had to shake up with the 2030 vision to begin with, because it wasn't getting control of its people anymore. As an Arab American, as a millennial yourself, do you think the millennials are going to be able to make a difference? Are we going to see change? I really appreciate you bringing that up and us perhaps ending on this point. 
Um, that said, it's not that you're wrong. I, I want to be mindful of not being too optimistic because as someone who made a career out of hope in the Arab world and the democratization of media and the Arab uprisings and the revolutions, I mean, that was kind of my bread and butter um, and my education and my inspiration to really have a career in storytelling and, and holding people accountable. I had so much hope back then. And, you know, social media was already a thing. And, and yet we've seen what's happened in the 10 years since then. I have a head of gray hair and <laughs> I don't know that young Arab people are better off. That said, you know, you're right. Nearly half of young uh, Arabs want to leave their country. It's not just Lebanon. Uh, they're frustrated with the struggling economies, with government corruption, with, um, you know, so many things. And I think, you know, governments in the Arab world and in the Middle East and civil society should really, really be focused in on this. Um, because this is, to your point, what is going to make or break the region. Uh, you know, during the lockdowns, uh, you know, I, I was, and I, I hate to make this shameless plug, but I was featured in GQ's uh, Middle East uh, recently. Uh, it was it was framed my my story or profile was framed around the youth and the hope and specifically how they've had to innovate. To your point about AUB and the elections, um, they've used their development skills, their online skills, being digital natives, and I think that these kinds of entrepreneurial skills and this mindset, more importantly was something that other generations hadn't seen before. And quite frankly, many of, of the other generations that are older, that are still living, um, can't wrap their heads around. And, and it's kind of counterintuitive to them. Uh, and since the coronavirus has taken hold, I mean, young people in the Arab world have had a real opportunity, right? For as tragic as this has been, and what an interruption, a disruption to our lives, it's also been an opportunity to become less reliant on these corrupt, dysfunctional governments in, in many ways. Um, so, so to your point, I think, yeah, there is hope in, in those skills that they're developing and their ability kind of to maneuver around the bureaucracy and the corruption that leaves so many of us in the Arab world wanting to get out. Yeah, um, I, being half English and, and half Lebanese, I always have the opportunity to leave. But uh, And I keep being posed this question by yeah. Arabs themselves. What are you still doing here? You know, why are you still here? Um, I'm here because I love being here. Um, I, I celebrate being uh, in Lebanon because for me, it's a door to the east and it's a door to the west. And I feel I feel happy. Mm -hmm. I am half half. Um, I'm in a, in a country where right. I, I, I'm celebrated. Uh, we celebrate the west and we celebrate the east. You know, it's it's a happy, harmonious uh, balance. I mean, we, we all have our political issues. We know what's been happening in the country. There's no point harping on about it, but I'm just trying to give it from my perspective. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today, because again, you're half Arab and you were born and raised in America. You, you've got these, these well, two, these two, what, what do you want to call it? Schools of thought that consistently no. battle against each other. And you're, you're constantly right. trying to find this how do I deliver this in a very peaceful way that makes sense to both sides? And I don't sound like um, I'm trying to push either. You know, it's funny. You said I'm half Arab. I'm actually full Arab. I mean, you know, both my parents are Palestinian, but but and I'm not trying to correct you, but it's interesting. It's like it's almost irrelevant because I was thinking, well, no, you're actually half, right? Because your mom is. Yeah, is, my mom's is British, English. I'm my dad's Lebanese. Dad yeah. Is, 
Yes. So it's, but it's interesting because, you know, only recently have I realized perhaps what my real purpose is in life. And it's funny, you know, I'm a journalist and people have hailed me as I haven't, I left my job over a year ago, my full-time job, and I've been working as a journalist here and there, but I've also been doing acting and improv and all these other things. And the reason is that I think what we need now more than ever is people who can build bridges. And I know that sounds super cheesy and like I'm giving you some pamphlet from some NGO, but it is so true because we live in a digital world. We're so connected and whether you're half half like you or whether you're like me where you're Arab, but you grew up in Europe and in States and you've worked here and there. Um, you know, I think what's, what's, what's interesting is that thing you said, which is for many millennials, whether growing up in Dubai or Lebanon or Singapore or wherever you want, um, it's almost as if the nation state is something that is limiting us both as a collective group, a generation, and as individuals. And I think I can totally relate to why you like being in Lebanon or why you are in Lebanon. Even me, people are like, you know, and, and we're privileged in a sense, right? And I think this is a moment for those of us who have that privilege, right? You know, like I said, nearly most young Arabs want to get out. Well, we, you and I have the ability to get out with, with kind of maybe not on the pandemic as much, but you know what I mean? And I think there really comes a great deal of responsibility uh, with that because, you know, we need to make connections in a moment of complete disconnection on policy levels and on personal levels. And I think that that's where there's hope with the millennials for as much as they hate on us and they say that we're entitled and we're all these things. Um, well, guess what? We're also working and to find ways to, to break through the, the systems that are broken that you've left us inherited with. And um, yeah, Lebanon is always a beacon of hope for me and I'm just pissed that I can't go there because um, yeah. That's Stop saying naughty things Ahmed, and you might be able to come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you need a good exactly. slap on your wrist. But I'm so glad you said what you said and, and I do feel like it's my responsibility and I do carry a large weight of really trying to be this bridge um even between friends like i, I have christian mm -hmm. friends i have shia friends i have sunni friends and then i sit in the middle and they start having an argument and i have to be this peacemaker and you know, why are yeah. you guys fighting each other like we were we were having a drink five minutes ago like why why does this have to be a fight why can't it be a discussion why can't we have a, a talk and if we talk we'll be able to find mm -hmm. solutions so I, I do, t and this is why I started this podcast. This is why I'm talking to people like you. Yeah, more power um, to you. Yeah, more power to you. Thank you. Maybe, maybe you know I'll why? It's enemy, because it's Emmy nomination soon. <laughs> but Sophie, Sophie, I mean, who, who, you don't need the Emmy nomination. I mean, you know, it helps here and there. But like, in all honesty, like, you just need to have an impact. And, and it's funny for you describing, you know, you're sitting between your Shiite friend and your Christian friend. I mean, you know, that stuff is inherited in a way that is subconscious. And I've experienced some horrific things in Lebanon that have shocked me to my core because it just made me realize how oblivious I was to the power of how that trauma that they lived, their parents lived um, during the Civil War. You know, kids who are born after the Civil War or who were one when the Civil War ended, you know, telling me in a nightclub in French, you know, if you were here 15 years ago, 
you know, we would have killed you simply because they asked me, how do you say apple in Arabic? Um, because I say it the Palestinian way rather than the Lebanese way. And those kind of hangups, you know, and it's exactly what you're doing. You, we were all just drinking, having fun, dancing to the same music, relating to the same things. And then all of a sudden, bam, history finds a way of creeping back in. And so, yeah, we need to heal. Yeah, so much healing to be done. Ahmed, I want to thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Uh, I honestly, you and I can probably go on for hours, so I might be bringing you back very, very soon. Yeah. But before we leave, um, please, if there's anything you'd like to highlight to our audience, uh, maybe you're working on a new documentary or anything you'd like to, to share, because I'm mm -hmm. sure they would like to follow. So do take that moment. All I will say is inspired in part by people like you who are taking initiative to have these conversations that are so needed. Um, and as someone who for like the better part of a decade has always been on TV and had my face and my you know, gesturing involved in storytelling, I'm really looking forward to, um, to launching a podcast and I'll leave it at that. And it's gonna be a podcast about um, letting go and detaching from our attachment to the things uh, in our identities that limit us because I've really learned more than I ever would have wanted to about how my attachment to my own identities uh, has limited me in ways that and made me suffer and maybe been destructive rather than constructive. It's not to say we shouldn't be proud like you said about who we are. So I guess all I'll say is that I would invite people to. Uh, to maybe reflect on that as well and hopefully soon um, be part of the conversation when my podcast launches. Definitely. What what a wonderful conversation to be part of. Hopefully um, uh, we'll have reverse roles very soon. <laughs> Ahmed, one more <laughs> yes, time. Yes, I'll have you on it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anybody who's been listening, again, I said, if you have any questions, Ahmed is quite responsive. You can hit him up on Instagram, get in yeah. touch, you know, ask the questions you need to ask. And uh, he's responded to me always. So there's no reason why he shouldn't respond to any of you. So thank you. Sometimes thank you. a day late, but, but I <laughs> respond. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so, so much. Thank you so thank much. Take care and have a great, great evening.